Welcome to Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus. I'm Carl Stevens. I'm the priest. And I am Daniel Bogard, the rabbi. And today we have reached Exodus chapter 16. It feels like we were talking about plagues for a long, long time. And I have to say there's an emptiness inside me now that we're not, Daniel. No more plagues, yes. Uh, actually, there's yes. an emptiness. I didn't really like the plagues, <laughs> to be honest. No, but, you know, it is kind of crazy that uh, we got so used to being a part of this Exodus from Egypt story, the Yitzhak Mitzrayim story, and we're done with it. Yeah, truly done. Uh, we are we are in the wilderness now. Right, uh, and it almost feels like a, a different story to some degree. The characters are the same, but we are on to season two, and uh, the costume department in our miniseries has brought out a whole new wardrobe for all the characters. Yeah, yes. Uh, oh, yes. It's got a new director. There's some lighting changes. Um, it's fast forward here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, but we should fast forward so that we can get through this chapter as we go. So chapter 16, I keep feeling like, uh, were you a, uh, Battlestar Galactica fan by any chance? Uh, you know, until the last season when it just got so depressing that I could no longer stomach it. Uh, you know, my wife watched the whole series in two weeks and didn't watch the last episode. Because it was too depressing? I, she just never watched okay. it. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes you have to preserve your joy in living. Um, <laughs> what? But why do you bring it up, Daniel? Uh, you, you know, maybe this says something uh, uh, bad about my uh, uh, rabbinate, but I think of Lost in the Wilderness here for the Israelites through the lens of Battlestar Galactica. You know, I feel like the show wanted you to think that. Uh, I think that's probably true. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Okay. Shall we jump in? Sure. Let's, let's do it. First uh, one. And they journeyed onward from Elam, and all the community of Israelites came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month of their going out from Egypt. And all the community of Israelites murmured against Moses and against Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, Would that he, we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out of this wilderness to bring death by famine on all this assembly. I think we should pause so there, I, right? We got, we got Midrash already. We got to pause. I, I don't know about you, but the way I've always thought of this, and maybe this is just how I've been taught it, is that like the Israelites, they do nothing but complain. Yeah. Right? It's the only thing they do in the wilderness. They just complain, they complain, they complain, they fetch. Uh, but I don't think it's an unreasonable complaint that we're dealing with here. Uh, because they don't know where their food is coming from? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they are refugees in the wilderness and all of a sudden they've realized that they fled slavery and don't have much of a plan from here on out. Okay. But uh, let me ask you this because this will come up in a moment and dear listeners, uh, Daniel and I do go through the Midrash beforehand. So I have secret knowledge of what's coming that you do not. But, oh, don't, don't give it away. Come on, this is but is it a fair complaint? Because these people left Egypt with a bunch of animals, livestock. They have food. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and that does seem to be uh, uh, one of the issues here. And actually later we're going to find out that uh, uh, you know the manna is given in the mornings. Uh, but in the evening there is meat. And this is one of those places where – it's just sort of the human experience that we have uh, 
we are so separated from now that the rabbis pick up this idea that they're given meat in the evening and they say that this is actually a punishment, uh, that they never should have asked for meat, uh, that first of all, you can live uh, without food on its or without meat uh, on its own. You should know there's a uh, rather subversive vegetarian streak amongst the uh, rabbis. Shocking. Uh, shocking. Yeah, I am a vegetarian too. So, you know, the, the subversion continues. Um, but what they go on to say is, they had animals, right? These aren't people who are lacking totally in food. Maybe they're lacking in a sense of how are they going to survive once they eat those animals. Uh, and so we're actually told that, uh, or the rabbis interpret this idea that the meat is given at night as a punishment because they have to prepare all of the meat at night. They have to kill the animals. They have to prepare everything. They have to, uh, you know, all the other things that go into butchering uh, and cooking meat is a long process. And it would make a lot more sense to give it in the morning where it can be prepared all day. So are you saying God is not delivering them pre-butchered meat shrink-wrapped from the grocery store? Probably not grocery store meat. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a, such a funny thing, right? Because the, the word in Hebrew is flesh. Uh-huh. But what we call meat and the product that we buy it would make no sense to them. Well, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know if it should make sense to us either, but you are not buying it as a vegetarian. So there we go. Exactly. Um, I, I'm a bad vegetarian. I eat fish now. Oh, well, then you're a pescatarian. Let's just be clear. Yeah, I have no ethical explanation for it other than they look less like me. Well, also, they're very healthy for you unless uh, water has been polluted. But let us let, leave that aside. I uh, Looking at verse uh, 3, it strikes me that what they're complaining about is bread. They say, uh, uh, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate our fill of bread. So they seem to like sitting next to pre-cooked meat, but what they really want to do is eat some bread. What they really want to do is eat some bread. And that's actually a uh, uh, idea from ancient uh, the ancient Levant, that a meal is a time when you are eating with bread as opposed to a snack is a time without bread. And that continues ah. today, actually. Uh, for Judaism, if you have bread at the table, there's one blessing that you say, and it covers the whole meal. And if you don't have bread, you have to say blessings over each and every food item. Really? That is, that is so cool. Um, I hope Jewish bakers know this and use it appropriately in the promotion of their, <laughs> of their stores and products. Um, yes. <laughs> it's like, save your blessings, get, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Shmeiman's bread. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, okay. So they're complaining about dying by famine, but it seems to me there's a community aspect to this. What they're really complaining about is we don't get to have luxurious meals like once we might have. Although when they were slaves, it's kind of hard to imagine that that was happening much. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be luxuries may be a part of it, but I think the real luxury that they're talking about is the luxury of security. Right. Right. It's they – for whatever else, they always knew where their next piece of bread was coming from in Egypt. Right. And now they no longer have that. They don't know where they're going. And now they no longer have that. Yeah. Yep. And that may be one reason why they're reluctant to eat the livestock, um, because that essentially is their bank account. That's their bank account, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this actually, this, this becomes the traditional Jewish explanation for why uh, 
this generation had to die off in the wilderness, which is that they had become so acculturated to the experience of slavery that they were incapable, fundamentally incapable of the experience of freedom. Right. And I've, uh, you know, I, I feel like my role in this podcast is to bring in Christian spirituality. <laughs> so I, uh, I would say that I think is a point to any kind of cycle of death and rebirth is that, uh, the part of us that is enslaved to, I don't know, sin, evil, bad habits needs to die in order for the new part to be born because we cling to what we know. Huh. Huh. Uh, anyway, should we continue verse four? And yeah. Onward, you, you want to take this part? And Adonai said to Moses, I will rain down bread for you from the sky and the people shall go out and gather each day that day's portion that I may thus test them to see whether they follow my instructions or not. So we, we've got this set up interestingly, right? It's not just that the Israelites are being provided their food, but there's some sort of psychological experiment that's happening also. Right. 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 There's someone watching through the double-sided mirror. Well, this goes to that idea of covenant, which we've been uh, touching on as that covenant is a two-way street, right? So God is not just going to give them manna. Um, they have to do something as well. Hmm. Does that seem hmm. accurate to you or am I off base? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I think we looked at a midrash a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago that talked about this pedagogically. Right. That right. part of this is training them to uh, be in a reciprocal relationship. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, but on the sixth day, when they apportion what they have brought in, it shall prove to be double the amount they gather each day. Uh, I like this, right? It's not that they – I always thought of it as they're supposed to go out and gather double – and keep it for the Sabbath. And instead here, it's sort of a miracle that they go out and they gather the regular amount. And instead they come back and realize they have double. Yeah, that's great. And it, it gets to a further midrash, which we will touch on when we reach verse 17. So, okay. Um, okay. And Moses and Aaron with him said to the Israelites at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the Lord's glory as he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And as for us, what are we that you should murmur against us? So uh, one thing I love about Moses's leadership, which I think in, you know, in a current context of leadership, I would find totally obnoxious, is that anytime anyone complains about him, he tells them that they're really complaining about God. Uh, <laughs> so he has a way of passing the buck to God at any convenient moment. <laughs> I, I, I hadn't really noticed that before. It's not, it's not really, you know, I'm going to see if it can work for me. Yeah, uh, I, I want to try that too. It seems really great, you know, to be like, listen, you can complain about me, but you should know that in doing so, you are really complaining about God. Yes, yes. It was not me who's responsible for the dishes left on the table. It really was God. <laughs> <laughs> and why are you such a heretic to be asked? Right, right. I find your, I find your doubt troubling. Uh, <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, but also this is here, I think, uh, so that we know and the people of Israel know that, that this really is about God, that it is not about Moses and Aaron at any point. That is a nice way of looking at it. Yes. Yes. 
Um, I, so I, I actually want to back up a second. You began verse six. Will you read your translation again for me? Just a few first few words. Sure. And Moses and Aaron with him said to the Israelites. Perfect. I, so there's a quality in that translation that it's Moses who's there and Aaron's hanging along. Yeah. And it just struck me because the Hebrew is just and Moses and Aaron said. Interesting. So this is Robert Alter. I'm, I'm reading from. Uh, and I don't know why he would do that. Vayomer Moshe Vaharon, and and Moses and Aaron said, "Okay, they should be taken in as a unit and not uh, as a hierarchy." Uh, yeah, though maybe what he's picking up on is a singular verb here, Vayomer. Oh, I um, see. I see. So there's a there's a problem in the grammar too. Okay, which actually is a nice reminder. We think of these sort of the, the Bible as having problems of translation, but it's not always just that the translations lose something. It's also that the Hebrew is often very unclear. Right. And um, that has a lot to do with what we talked about last week uh, in terms of there being no vowels. (laughs) Yes. And no punctuation. Um, And some things that look like grammatical mistakes. Okay. Uh, All right. Going on for verse eight. And Moses, yes, please. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you meat in the evening to eat and your fill of bread in the morning, when the Lord hears your murmurings that you murmur against him, and what are we? Not against us are your murmurings, but against the Lord. That, that's an odd translation. Um, I've got something similar. Okay. Okay. So it's Moses setting himself aside, as I was just saying, and pointing towards God. And it happened as Maron was speaking to all the community of Israelites that they turned toward the wilderness and look, the Lord's glory appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, I've heard the murmurings of the Israelites. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So this was the idea that the the meat in the evening is actually something not of a punishment but of a um, a lessening of it as a gift, mm-hmm. a calling them to reciprocity of covenant. Um, this is also a theophany, isn't it? Like, I didn't really notice that until this moment that uh, everybody looks and they see this cloud and they have God appear in the cloud. Or the God, yeah, there or, is a physicality here. Yeah, or God's glory. I mean, I want to, uh, since nobody has ever seen God or, you know, maybe this is uh, an outpouring of divinity appearing in this cloud. But um, you can see why people would start taking this seriously. Like God is is laying it down with signs and wonders. Yeah, it's the language that these people know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Right. That's what it means to be in relationship with the divine is to have something physical. Uh, Right. And at that level, the people still need an idol. Right. Uh, Well, that seems a little unfair. I mean, don't we all need little inbreaking moments of divine understanding or something? Uh, Keep going. What do you mean? Uh. Just that, 
I think there are very few of us who can maintain kind of rigorous belief just based around an idea or, or, or a set of notions from time to time. We need some uh, moment of passage. It's what um, it's what it's what Cheryl Wunsch was saying last week. You know, you may be on the edge of the Red Sea and um, you may need signs, right? Like, like anyone can stand on the red sea, uh, edge of the Red Sea and say empirically or in my mind, intellectually, I believe in God, but few people are going to step into the Red Sea the unless they have more, uh, more proof of God's presence than merely their own thoughts about God. Okay. Okay. This is the, the show me the money moment. Yeah, exactly. This is an important show me the money moment. Okay. Okay, you convinced me. Okay. All right, I love that. Uh, do you want to take up the reading? Uh, happily. What verse, where did we stop? I believe verse 12. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Uh, let me back up to 11. The Lord said, spoke to Moses. I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Speak to them and say, by evening you shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your God. Right? There is a... Um, big protector quality going on right here. Uh-huh. Uh, in the evening, quail appeared and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a fall of dew about the camp. So uh, can I just say that I've been misunderstanding this for a very long time now, and I blame the cartoon history of the universe, uh, which <laughs> I don't know if you know this wonderful book. Uh, it's It's truly great. But when it's... Uh, covering this episode, it reads it that the quail have nothing to do. Uh, the quail is not the meat that God is giving them, that the quail come down in the evening and especially send all night defecating on the ground. And that the ground is this, or the defecation is essentially the manna. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really gross. Yeah, I know. So for years I've been going around with the thought in my mind, like it could just be miraculous quail poop. Uh, <laughs> I, and I think you've named the uh, podcast. <laughs> Maybe, but well, but it's very clear wrong because uh, the quail is the meat that the people are promised. Yeah. And, yeah. and the dew is the manna or the manna is something else that the dew is covering. Um, so yes. Well, speaking of gross, right, this is maybe my favorite uh, uh, story here. And this comes from Rashi. He says that uh, the manna itself, that there's the dew and then the manna comes and then there's dew on top of it as if the manna is uh, uh, in a box or I liked your your idea earlier. It's, it's saran wrap for uh -huh. the manna, uh, which I, I love this explanation because much like the idea of manna as quail poop, the idea of manna is sitting there on the ground waiting for me to get, it sounds kind of gross. Yeah. Yeah. But the way manna is described in the next verse, I think for me, until I realized just in this moment, how totally wrong this is, uh, it reinforced the quail poop hypothesis um, because huh, it's described yeah. as stuff fine, flaky, fine as frost on the ground. Uh, that is not a far off description of quail poop. I'm, I'm a little <laughs> nauseous right now. I'll be honest. This is, okay. Right. Yeah. 
Well, okay. Well, the cartoon history of the universe has now been thoroughly debunked by a close reading of, of Exodus. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we don't know what manna really was. We don't know what it looked like. Well, we kind of know what it looked like, but we don't know what it um, what it was substantially. It's just miraculous food. It's just miraculous food. We actually get a description of it a little later, right? Yeah, I think we get a of the taste. I think we do. Of the taste. It tastes like honey. And Rashi picks this up and uh, gives a physical description. He says that we're talking about seeds or, or things that are white and are about the size of the seed of coriander. Really? Um, so I actually have a new theory on manna. It, it's dipping Dots. Ooh. But that is very hard to collect. That seems a very inefficient way of delivering holy food to the people. Yeah, I'm, though I'm sort of imagining, right, Dippin' Dots, like at the football game, those little balls of yeah, ice cream. Yeah, yeah. We're, just, we're going out and we're sort of gathering a big handful of Dippin' Dots. It tastes like honey. It's, uh, you know? Yeah, I guess I, I guess that could actually be quite delightful. All right, so we have the holy Dippin' Dots. The holy um, dipping dots that are well-preserved in dew. Let us not forget. Yes, yes. Each individually shrink-wrapped. So this is... Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, and we are at verse 15, I think. And the yes. Israelites saw, and they said to each other, Manhu, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Is that a play on words? Is that where manna comes from? Oh, I'd never thought of that before. Yes, it absolutely is. Um, and that's why your translation has it in the Hebrew. Right. Okay. Huh. What is it? Well uh, done, Robert Alter. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you as food. This is the thing that the Lord charged. Gather from it each man according to what he must eat. And Omer to a head, the number of persons among you, each man for those in his tent you shall take. And the Israelites did thus, and they gathered some more and some less. Which brings us, I think, to the best midrash we have today. Uh, Rashi. Some gathered too much and some gathered too little. But when they came home, they measured with an omar, each one, what he had gathered. And they found that the one who had gathered too much had not exceeded an omar for each person who was in the tent. And the one who had gathered too little did not find less than an omar for each person. This was a great miracle that occurred with the manna. So, you know, I first read this Rashi and I sort of laughed at the idea that this was a great miracle, hmm. right? It's sort of an absurd miracle, right? Right. Um, but then I thought about it and the, the great miracle is that it preserved the community. Then it just preserved them uh physically as food, it preserved them spiritually in the sense that it made sure that there was not visible daily reminders of inequality. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody is um, getting their exact dole. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much you think you have gathered. Everyone has just the same, which is just enough. That is that. Jeez. That's really beautiful. <laughs> I really love that. Um, too bad we do, we don't have uh, divine aid in our food distribution systems. Yeah, right? Yeah. Hmm. Um, because I like this idea that naturally there are those of us who go out and gather too much. Right. 
right? For whatever reasons, whether it's a desire to have security or to have more or whatever it is, and there are those of us who, for whatever reason, gather too little. Um, so, you know, it is, it is a great miracle, this idea that it could end up evenly distributed. Right. Right. Uh, so the, what is it is distributed evenly among the holy people. Um, and they measured it by the Omer. Now you did a little work for us to figure out what an Omer is. And yes. uh, I'm sure most people are, th- are wondering, so what is an Omer, Daniel? So, you know, I'm going to jump ahead for a moment. The very last verse of our uh, chapter says that in Omer is one tenth of an ephah. So I assume everyone knows what an ephah is. So we can stop there. No, it is entirely clear. Uh, so Rashi picks this up and says an ephah is equal to three se'ahs. So I, I assume we're fine now. Yeah, um, sure. But just just for those who are less familiar with se'ahs, uh, this is the same as six calves, which is equal to four logs. I think we all covered this in like fourth grade math. Exactly. And a log is equivalent. We're finally going to get somewhere we'll understand to six eggs. She goes on to note that it is the size of displacement that six eggs create. Now, are we talking chicken eggs, quail eggs, ostrich eggs? You know, it's interesting. Uh, maybe, maybe are we talking about quail eggs since we're dealing with quails in this uh, chapter? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh Good question. Uh, regardless, if you do the math with all of that, you find that in EFA uh, is the size of 432 eggs. <laughs> uh, and so if an Omer is one-tenth of an EFA, uh, then the amount of food or the size, the physical space that the mana per person would take up is the 432 two eggs, uh, or to go ahead and round this about the size of four dozen eggs. So what makes me sad at this moment is it was, it's just 1.2 away from being the answer to the life, the universe and everything. Uh, It's a good point. We were close. Yeah, very close. Um, well, okay. So that's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. Yeah. I mean, right. That's, do you think, do we eat the equivalent of four Four dozen eggs. I'm trying to think of like you know a dozen eggs that you buy at the store. Maybe no. Well, no? well I I doubt it. But you know I might eat that equivalency in dipping dots. In dipping, yes, exactly. <laughs> if all of your food tasted like dipping dots, <laughs> if I could get all the nutritional values from my dipping dots, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With an equational quail sna- uh, snack, yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Just for the protein. Um, yeah, actually, you go to some of the finest restaurants in the world, it's what you'll find, quail and dipping dots. <laughs> Yum. Okay, that might be the name of the episode. Anyway. <laughs> uh, okay, so they basically, they have a lot of food and everybody has exactly the same amount. Everyone has exactly the same amount. And he who took more had no extra, and he too took less and no lack, each according to what he must eat did they gather. And Moses said to them, let no man leave over from it till morning. But Right, this is again this idea of it's not about excess. In fact, it's about anti-excess. Right, right. Don't, don't store things up for the next day. And can I, uh, I just want to point out, like, I, I can't read this without thinking about my mother, who was a, a refugee when she was a small child, um, from the ages of five to eight. And as a result, 
her pantry was always incredibly full, like ridiculously full. Um, And, you know, I attributed it to her worry about food safety or uh, scarcity, you know, that Mm. uh, if she didn't have all these things, she just could not feel secure. So, you know, we talk about this lightly as if, oh, of course, God will provide and no need to be worried. But I think anyone who has actually lived through intense periods of scarcity, um, this is incredibly hard, like spiritually incredibly hard. I mean, it's incredibly hard for anyone, but particularly for those who have had reason to fear uh, the provision of sustenance will will not be there. I, you know, I was actually, I was in uh, Chillicothe, Ohio last night talking to a really wonderful uh, uh, group from an Episcopal church there. Um, and somehow one of the questions we got to was about uh, the culture of Holocaust survivors. Mm. And one of the things we know is that uh, there are recognizable and studied uh, specific types of mental illness, which you find in the children and even the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors. Wow. Um, You know, these, you don't come out of the other side of these experiences. Um, a whole person in the same way, or maybe that's not fair. You don't come out as a, uh, um, you don't come out with some scars that stay with you. Right. You, you don't come out easily, um, easily acclimated to normal life in a, in a fairly stable society at any rate. (laughs) Yeah. Or you realize what a thin, you you realize what a thin veneer civilized society is. Right. Right. And here we have the chosen people who um, have left that thin veneer entirely, even though that that society was oppressive to them. And now they're wandering. And I mean, this is a story of trauma. And we, we just need to keep that in mind. Like, uh, anytime we wonder why are these people complaining so much, we need to give them the sympathy uh, we would give to anyone who had been horribly traumatized. Yeah. Yeah. We forget that. You're right. It, it, they're not like people. Uh, right. They become so much of just a part of our story. We, we don't think right. these as human beings with all the same needs and sufferings and wants that human beings have. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So instead of doing that, instead of, um, uh, turning them into like fable characters, I think it's good to stay rooted in their humanity. Mm. Um, because mm. I, I think scripture roots in there. Like it never, I mean, that's part of its great beauty is that, uh, it does not follow us in that instinct to turn them into an allegory or something. It insists on their humanity throughout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are certainly not perfect people. Right, right. Okay, which leads us to the giant butt uh, in verse 20. Because uh, Moses has just told them, don't leave any of it till morning. But they don't heed Moses, and they leave over some of it from mor- till morning. Meaning, okay, so let's just build this scenario. They have the equivalent of 42 eggs and quail and dipping dots. They have to eat it all every day. Um, otherwise, uh, well, Moses has said you have to eat it every day. And so some don't. And it breeds, and it says, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was furious at them. And they gathered it morning after morning, every man according to what he must eat. And when the sun got hot, it melted. Once so again. Got, oh, go ahead. 
Well, it just said it melts, so upholds the dipping dot hypothesis. But go upholds on. The hip, di- dipping dots, exactly. Dipping yeah. dots of quail. Uh-huh. Um, I, so there's a beautiful midrash that comes out of this that says that as the manna would melt, it would turn into streams. Oh, yeah. And there would be uh, gazelles and deer that would gather on the edges of the camp uh, to drink from these streams of manna. And I, I, yeah. So this is feeding all of creation. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I just love this image sort of of the um, beauty that would gather around, the natural beauty that would gather around. Yeah. Uh, also, this is not an, an utterly empty wilderness. And, you know, I, uh, I think that's the other thing. Like they are, they are actually wandering through a wilderness that is alive with, with animals, plant lives, oasises, uh, and, and then later civilizations, uh, countries they pass through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, so, this is not an abandoned space. Yeah. In some way, the wilderness is not actually about geography. It is about where they find themselves as people. Hmm. Nice. Uh, okay. Do you want to read from there? Uh, We're at verse 22. Yes, uh, 22. On the sixth day, they gathered double the amount of food, two omers for each. And when all the chieftains of the community came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what Adonai meant. Tomorrow is a day of rest, a holy Sabbath of Adonai. Bake what you are able to bake and boil what you are able to boil. And all that is left put aside to be kept until morning. So first of all, I love this idea. It's being cooked. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Wow. So dipping dot soup. Um, but is, is this the first introduction of the Sabbath? Is this the first introduction of the Sabbath? No, I believe we get references in uh, Genesis. Okay. It's the first we do in Exodus, maybe. Maybe. Um, right. And actually, this becomes the core idea of the Sabbath for Jews today. Uh that it is a day on which you don't do creative work. So you don't cook on the Sabbath. You don't create something new. You do all of it beforehand. Uh, and the other fundamental quality here is that you stay in place, uh, that you not move on the Sabbath. It's a hyper-local day. Uh, the idea that you stay with your family and your friends who are around you and you gather together for meals and board games, and uh, it all comes from here. I love that idea of a hyper-local day. That's, that's beautiful. I, I mean, just as a way of conceiving that, you know, one day a week should be hyper-local. <laughs> hyper-local. Yeah. And the, you know, the fundamental idea of the Sabbath, we, we think of it, I think, uh, because of translation as being a day when we don't work, but it's not work in the sense of labor, which is what we usually mean. It's, uh, work in the sense of creation. Mm-hmm. that six days a week, we really master creation, right? We, we flip a switch on the wall and we turn uh, night into day. We adjust a knob and we turn summer into winter. Uh, and for one day a week, we're not supposed to change. We're supposed to just be a part of creation rather than the masters of it. Wow. That's so different. You know, because when you were saying creative work, I was thinking, well, I know synagogues employ Gentiles to like turn the lights off and, and how is that creative work? But you just named it, right? Like, uh, it's creative because it is taking the place of creation. It is not just imitating, but, but supplementing or, um, going around even, uh, what creation would have us do. Yeah. Right. It's so easy to go through our world as human beings acting as if we are the masters of creation, 
Mm-hmm. And the whole notion of the Sabbath is that for 25 hours a week, you instead are obligated to be a part of creation. Yeah. Um, and this goes to the fact that uh, the Sabbath begins at sundown and ends when you can see three stars the next night, which is about 25 hours. Uh, mm. But that time period changes, right? It, it, the nature of the Sabbath is different in August when it begins at, you know, nine at yeah. night. Yeah. Three stars the next night. That is, so that's when it officially ends. That's when it officially ends. And it's one of my favorite things to do with the kids is we uh, will go out, you know, five, ten minutes beforehand and start looking for three stars. But there's got to be a, a caveat in case it's overcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of things like that. And there's uh, calendars online. You check the time, and that's what most people do. Uh, we okay. just we love the stars. Uh, yeah. Eventually, we give up and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dad saw three stars. Come on in. <laughs> Well, that I love that. That is beautiful. Uh, okay, what verse are we on? Uh, we are on uh, verse twenty-four. Twenty-four. Okay, let's let's continue with verse twenty-four. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not turn foul, and there were no maggots in it. Then Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath of Adonai. You will not find it today on the plain. Six days you shall gather it. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Yet some so of the people... God is, wait, wait, wait. So God is not working either. God is not working on the Sabbath. Exactly. Yeah, you're, you're not going to get manna because God is uh, resting on the Sabbath. Uh, but God will make sure that you have something to eat. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is awesome. Okay. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yet some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found nothing. Now, first of all, think about how anxiety inducing that must have been. Yeah. Right. Right. As a refugee to all of a sudden have your source of food disappear for a day. Right. Presumably also maybe some didn't hear about what Moses had said the day before. I mean, there are a lot of people. He can't be talking to all of them at once. So. Yeah, we're told 600,000 men. So, you know, yeah. 2 million people. Right. Uh, okay. And so Adonai said to Moses, how long will you refuse to obey my commandments and my teachings? Mark that Adonai has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, God gives you two days food on the sixth day. Let everyone remain where he is. Let no one leave his place on the seventh day. So the people remained inactive on that seventh day. Um, so God is uh, resting from creation, but God is not necessarily resting from relationship because here it is the seventh day and God, you know, bestirs and speaks to Moses and, and kind of chastises. Um, so God's Sabbath is the model for our own, right? Exactly. Relationship is actually a key part of Sabbath uh, observance in the Jewish world. It's about having people over for a meal and getting together and singing and uh, making music and learning together and all of these sorts of things. Uh, But the whole notion is that we refrain from the sorts of creation that occurred in the six days of creation, the the making of things and the changing of things. Uh, In the extreme of this is you'll find in the Orthodox world uh, that people don't tear toilet paper on the Sabbath. Wow. (laughs) Pre-torn toilet paper. But how is that a creative act or what does that have to do with creation? You know, when you tear something, you are fundamentally changing it. 
This is true. Right? So it's, again, I think these things, if we think of just the details, are can seem silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you think of it as a profound day where every action is imbued with a sense of not changing the world. Um, you know, I, I personally have found Sabbath observance to be incredibly meaningful for what it does the other six days mm-hmm. um, in the sense of obligation it gives me to creation on those other six days. Yeah. Uh, there's almost an environmental environmentalist quality that emerges, I think. Right, right. That's what I've been getting uh, throughout. Yeah. Um, it concentrates our attention on creation and our impact. Yeah. Yeah. Therein. Just how much of an impact we have. Right. Right. Wow. That's something to think of when flipping a light switch. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. And the house of Israel called its name manna and it was like coriander seed white. And its taste was like a wafer and honey. Dip and does. Yeah. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded. A full omer of it is to be kept for your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when they get to Canaan uh, and God has stopped feeding them with this, uh, they're supposed to keep the equivalent of 42 eggs worth of it or 43.2 eggs worth of it somewhere. So so where where is that omer? Where is that? Yeah, it, evidently it's saved uh, not just with dew, but like a vacuum sealer we're talking about here. Space right. saver, too. Yeah. Right. It, um, it has a preservative qualities of a McDonald's hamburger. <laughs> That's disgusting. <laughs> um, so, yes, I did some digging. Where is this jar, or what are the legends around it at least, right? There must be some good stories. Uh, so there's a section in the Talmud that says it was taught in a baraita, which means that the Talmud itself is picking up a legend. Uh, the, the ark along with the jar of manna, along with the flask of oil used for anointing, along with Aaron's staff with its almonds and blossoms, and the chest that the Philistines sent as a gift to the God of Israel uh, after they'd captured the ark and were stricken by several plagues was hidden beneath the temple in some hidden vault, uh, Indiana Jones style, I guess. Um, though, have we gotten to the place where uh, uh, we think of the ark as being referencing Indiana Jones rather than the opposite direction? Um, uh, we might. Yeah. Yep. Anyway. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and who buried the ark, the Talmud asks? It was King Josiah, uh, the king who comes to power uh, around 621 BCE uh, because he knew the Babylonians were coming and he was hiding it from them. Uh, so evidently this jar of manna is still there if we get hungry. Uh, we just have to start digging in maybe the most uh, contentious archaeological spot in the world. Uh, okay, but but the presumption is that it's still around, that That's, one could find manna. That was at least the presumption, you know, 1,800 years ago when this was written in the Talmud. Okay, which is a long time. But a long still, time. it's manna. It could be around. Um, and this would be, did you say it's inside the ark? Or? With the ark. It's all buried together. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm just asking because, uh, when we get to the description of the construction of the Ark, uh, I think only the tablets go inside it, right? 
That's my memory. And the broken tablets. We get both sets. And the bro- oh, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that in future chapters. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, continuing verse 34, as the Lord had charged Moses, Aaron set up before the covenant to be kept. And the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to settled land. The manna did they eat until they came to the edge of the land of Canaan. And the Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Uh, what what does it mean Aaron set up before the covenant to be kept? Sorry, so I was looking note, at the Midrash. Uh, the, okay, there's a note from Alter that says, this phrase is clearly an ellipsis for before the Ark of the Covenant. The problem is that the Ark of the Covenant, in which the two tables of the law are kept, does not yet exist in the story. The injunction here, then, must be read as an anticipation of the time when the Ark will be an established fact and a sacrosanct cultic focus. Interesting. Yeah, the Ark doesn't exist yet. Actually, there's a... Uh, there's a notion that Rashi propagates in his commentary, and it'll make more sense actually as we get farther along in Exodus, which is that there is no chronological order in the Torah. That mm, right. it, it appears to be a story that goes in order, uh, but in fact that the truth that is found within Torah is not itself chronological, uh, which helps because as we start reading the next few chapters, we will see that uh, – a lot of things like this pop up where uh, uh, mm-hmm. things seem out of order. I yeah, I mean, I think Rashi is just abundantly correct. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm glad that there's no attempt to make it all make uh, sense in that chronological way. And I, I think we can thank uh, ancient rabbis like Rashi for not doing what modern biblical fundamentalists do, which is assist- insisting that through some kind of Occam razors defying logic, it can all be forced mm-hmm. into our own lineal sense of things, linear sense of things. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Uh, okay. But there is, uh, so 40 years, there's a, another Midrash from Rashi about that 40 years. And I, I have to admit, I don't entirely understand it. He says that 30 days are missing. How are, how 30 are, 30 days are missing. missing? So, right, if you look at the Torah here, and the Israelites ate manna for 40 years. And mm-hmm. here's the problem. Uh, we know that the time in the wilderness is 40 years, right? Right. And they didn't start eating manna at the beginning. There's a whole oh, month, right? They've we get, already been wandering. They've already been wandering. In fact, our chapter uh, begins by telling us we're in the second month. So yeah. what does it mean that they ate manna for 40 years? And Rashi picks this up uh, from the Talmud and what the Talmud's doing here. It's really sort of a beautiful teaching. Uh, it says that the matzah, the bread that the Israelites brought with them when they left Egypt, that even though it was bread, it had the taste of manna in it. Uh that there was something different about eating in freedom, the taste of freedom, uh, in the experience of freedom than there was fundamentally about uh, any food, no matter how delicious, uh, in slavery. That is, yeah, that's great. Okay, so the original matzah tasted like manna. It tasted like dipping Dots. Well, right, right. And our... Uh our Jewish baker now has an even better ad line. Um, you know, don't just uh, reduce your number of blessings by eating my bread, but my bread, my bread tastes like manna. There you go. <laughs> this is the bread from the 30 days. There you go. Actually in the Jewish world, it ends up being the opposite. 
because if you eat bread, it's considered a full meal, which obligates you to say the blessings following the meal, which are quite long. They can take five, six minutes. Oh, so oh, wait, people, this is a oh yeah. People you led me astray. Routinely <laughs> avoid; they'll eat huge amounts of food, and they avoid eating meat. Uh, excuse me, avoid eating bread, uh, so that they uh, uh, don't have to say the long blessings at the end. Okay, but but if they don't eat bread, don't they have to say long blessings at the beginning? Short blessings. Each food is a short blessing. Yeah. Oh, so you could have a series of short bless, blessings at the beginning or one short blessing at the beginning and then a ton of blessings at the end. Exactly. Though actually the biblical commandment is only to bless the food after you've eaten, not before. Uh, oh. And so, you know, a lot of people think this is uh, uh, skirting the law here. Right. Well, that is uh, that's that's quite curious. I mean, I again, I think that shows in some ways a deep care for creation because you know we we have a rope blessing we say before each meal, so rote that in fact sometimes I have to ask, you know, did we pray already after we started yeah, eating? Yeah, yeah. And then I'm told by my family that we in fact did, uh, which does not speak well to my prayer life or regard for the food that we are eating, and it would be much more powerful if we prayed for each thing as we went. You know, it's really one of my favorite personal spiritual practices is saying blessings on all the food that I eat uh, because it's a different blessing depending on where the food came from. So whether it was grown in the ground or it came from an animal uh, or is a processed food or came from a tree, all of these uh demand different blessings. And so there's a hyper awareness of where our food came from uh, when you eat. Are these blessings written down somewhere? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sure. Where, where could one find them? Uh, one could find them at uh, the link for the podcast because I'll send you a link and we can put it there. That sounds great. I, I mean, I would love to start doing that. Um my wife has, as a New Year's resolution, has compiled a list of things that we should be eating every day, you know, cruciferous vegetables and fish and things like that. And uh, so, and has started going over it every night. And that would be a great thing to do is also to say a blessing for each thing as we, huh. as we say that we've eaten it that day. Uh, fantastic. Yes. Put that link in. Uh, well, my brother, we are at 50 minutes, so we should call this to an end. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness, a priest and a rabbi explore Exodus is produced by Daniel Bogart and Carl Stevens and is made possible by Christchurch Cathedral and the Diocese of Southern Ohio. Uh, Lost in the Wilderness is part of Exodus, a DSO Big Read, which you can learn more about by going to adsobigread.org. Our theme music is by Brianna Kelly from her album, All Things Are Being Made New. Uh, and you can find me at prayerbookart.com. Daniel, where do you want people to go find you? Uh, check out my new blog on myjewishlearning.com. Uh, I went there last week and I looked up your name and it didn't come up, uh, but many things about the book of Daniel came up, but is it up now? As far as it should know? be. It should be. Okay. Okay. I'll go there again and look for it. Uh, all right, dear listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope we entertained you with our, um, geeky sci-fi side jokes. Uh, we certainly uh, entertained ourselves. Yeah, we sure did. Um, we will talk to you next Take week. Take care.